You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on my book, Sustainable Frontiers, Unlocking Change Through Business, Leadership and Innovation. First Steps Towards CSR 2.0 To take the first steps, we must understand how to overcome resistance to change. Richard Beckard and David Gleitch's formula for change states that D times V times F must be greater than R, where D means dissatisfaction with how things are now, V stands for vision of what is possible, F stands for first concrete steps that can be taken towards the vision, and R is resistance to change. In terms of CSR and sustainability, the weakest variable is D, in other words, dissatisfaction with the status quo. This requires connecting people to the impacts of their actions using tools like footprinting for ecological carbon and water impacts, life cycle assessment, and supply chain auditing. The evolution from CSR 1.0 to CSR 2.0 will be a long and bloody battle. In my own experience as a South African, it took over 40 years of sustained and organized protest to change the entrenched power of the apartheid government, especially given the powerful vested interests of big companies. The Occupy movement is one important indicator that the element D, or dissatisfaction, is changing in a way that is favourable for CSR 2.0 and ought to be encouraged and sustained, as with movements like Climate Strike or Black Lives Matter. In terms of first steps, I recommend five actions to organisations that genuinely want to move from CSR 1.0 to CSR 2.0. Step 1. Reassess. This is about taking stock of the social, environmental and ethical impacts of a company. In other words, creating a sustainability and responsibility performance baseline. Sustainability guidelines by the Global Reporting Initiative, Carbon Disclosure Project and the International Integrated Reporting Council are a good place to start, although ultimately this should embrace life cycle impact assessment, which resulted in BASF switching to recyclable nylon 6, and full cost accounting, long used at companies like Ontario Hydro and Baxter International. Step 2. Realign. This is about rethinking what cross-sector partnerships will shift perceptions and practices. In line with the Sustainable Development Goals, organizations need to find partners in business, government and civil society that will complement internal capabilities while challenging the status quo. Examples include Rio Tinto partnering with the World Conservation Union to address biodiversity impacts and Unilever partnering with UNICEF, Oxfam, PSI, Save the Children and the World Food Programme to help improve the lives of more than a billion people worldwide. Step 3. Redefine. This is about bold leadership, in particular setting a vision and strategic goals for the organization, which will inspire and challenge all stakeholders. 
Examples include former CEO of Walmart, Lee Scott, setting three sustainability goals for the company, including 100% renewable energy, zero waste, and making all products sustainable. Interface's Mission Zero, set by Ray Anderson, Unilever's Sustainable Living Plan, set by Paul Pullman, and ST Microelectronics Carbon Neutral Strategy, set by Pasquale Pistorio, are other cases in point. Step 4. Redesign. This is about innovation, especially redesigning products and services to have minimal negative impact. Some companies are taking inspiration from Janine Benyus's concept of biomimicry, learning from nature's designs, such as Interface's Gecko Foot non-glue adhesive tiles, while others are challenged by C.K. Prahalad and Stuart Hart's concept of bottom of the pyramid serving the poor, such as BP's Urja low-smoke stove or Vodafone's M-Pesa financial texting service. Step 5. Restructure. This is about transformation of the context in which organizations operate. In other words, changing the rules of the game, especially the policy environment. For example, supporting bold climate change policies to ensure a carbon price and efficient carbon trading, as the CEOs of the EU Corporate Leaders Group on Climate Change have done. Or working on ingredient labels and salt, fat, and sugar level disclosures for food manufacturers and retailers, or product take-back schemes in the electronics industry. At the heart of the transformational nature of CSR 2.0 is the need to embrace long-term capitalism. This means testing all economic activity against five principles of responsible capitalism. 1. Investment. Ensuring that money is channeled towards productive investments and not into speculative trading in the casino economy, as the cooperative bankers demonstrated successfully. 2. Long-termism. Understanding that real wealth is created by taking a long-term perspective, including the needs of future generations, such as Generation Investment and Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway practice. 3. Transparency. Embracing transparency in revenues in line with the Global Reporting Initiative, Carbon Disclosure Project and Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative. 4. Full cost accounting. Internalizing social and environmental costs or externalities either through taxes, such as a tax on carbon or pollution, or social and environmental profit and loss accounts, such as those of Puma. And five, inclusion, enacting Michael Porter and Mark Kramer's concept of creating shared value and serving the bottom of the pyramid markets, as demonstrated by the BOP 2.0 protocol. We live in exciting times, a true period of bifurcation. We live on the cusp of the post-industrial revolution, and for the first time we can finally glimpse what a new model of sustainable business and purpose-inspired capitalism could look like. As with so many things in life, the quest for a sustainable future is like a wheelbarrow. The only way we will make progress is if we pick it up and push forward. And the only way we will motivate people to join us in this effort is if they believe in what we are building. And what are we building? We are building nothing less than a new form of capitalism, one that serves society 
and sustains the planet. Towards Responsible Competitiveness A few years ago, I was invited to make a presentation on CSR in Brussels to the EU high-level group on CSR, comprising 27 member state representatives. The topic of my presentation was CSR and the global financial crisis, and it gave me a fantastic opportunity to talk with some of the people helping to shape the EU agenda. There were a number of trends I found interesting. The first was that, whereas formerly CSR was discussed purely as a voluntary activity by business, this was especially clear in the EU's policy statement on CSR in 2006, there was now increasing discussion and even demand for what Susan Bird, CSR coordinator in the Directorate General for Employment of the European Commission and part of the EU high-level group on CSR, called a more active role, which may involve conditions being introduced in the future, although this was all still up for debate. The second insight was how the competitiveness agenda has changed. The first 10-year economic strategy of the European Union, the Lisbon Agenda, which ended in 2010, was all about competitiveness and paid very little attention to CSR issues. However, the European Competitiveness Report dedicated an entire chapter to CSR and countries such as Denmark were claiming that responsible green growth was central to its international reputation and hence its competitiveness. This changed emphasis was reflected in the new Lisbon strategy which has as its central goal smart, sustainable and inclusive growth. One of the people who has done the most work on responsible competitiveness is Simon Zadig. I had the pleasure of visiting him in the lakeside city of Geneva when he was still CEO of Accountability. The purpose of my visit was to interview Zadig about his book, The Civil Corporation. This formed part of a research project I was conducting for the University of Cambridge, which resulted in the publication of the top 50 sustainability books. Reflecting back on the book and on what has changed since, Zadig pointed to the geopolitical shift towards Asia and Russia, the increasing influence of investment markets, the re-emergence of a strong state role and greater emphasis on partnerships and collaboration. I asked him what had prompted his more recent focus on responsible competitiveness. Zadek explained that it emerged largely as a response to the views of David Henderson, expressed in his book Misguided Virtue, False Notions of Corporate Social Responsibility. Henderson argued that corporate responsibility increased poverty because it reduced market flexibility and added costs, whereas markets were the route to prosperity. It was a rather caricatured view of everything, claimed Zadek, but the underlying point made came through to me, which was, what are the macroeconomic effects? We've all been concentrating on the micro side. Zadek began to realize that micro-level innovation would be halted if the national policy implications of advancing corporate responsibility at the micro-level would undermine national or regional competitiveness. So, to understand the political economy of corporate responsibility or sustainability or citizenship required an understanding of where national competitiveness strategies and the political dimensions of that hit the road on this agenda. To illustrate what he meant, 
Zadig noted that the debate about a post-Kyoto deal was a debate about competitiveness. What's going to prevent it moving on is a zero-sum view without a payoff matrix. That is, about a loss of competitiveness at both the top of the economic pyramid and mid and low levels in the pyramid. I pushed him to elaborate. Climate change is the perfect storm, he said. It's a credible systemic risk accompanied by flexible and demonstrable failure of our two primary large-scale instruments of change, namely public policy and capital market allocation. Because public policy is not reshaping markets to be forward-thinking at anything like the pace that's needed, and capital markets are not recognizing the value-added opportunities or factoring them into their asset valuation methodologies. And so at that point, the importance of collaboration, new models of partnerships, new ways of constructing market rules becomes the game. I think Singapore can give further insights on responsible competitiveness, especially around the issues of water and human resources. It was only after a political crisis with Malaysia that Singapore instituted the range of measures, including leading-edge filtration and desalination technologies that now make it not only virtually water self-sufficient, but also a leading exporter of water technologies. I did hear talk of Singapore becoming a green IT or clean tech hub for Asia, but I think the government's softly, softly approach will leave it far in the wake of countries such as South Korea, Japan and China. Even so, there is a lesson to be learned from Singapore. As a geographically small city-state with a relatively high population density, the government quickly faced up to the fact that there is no away. It had to deal with its own externalities rather than export them. Innovation was born of necessity. Poverty and pollution could not be tucked away in remote rural regions or ignored as the inevitable lot of a fringe slum society. Either the whole city prospered or it didn't. There was nowhere to hide poor governance. As the Asian tigers jockeyed for position in the region and in the world in the 1980s and 1990s, Singapore made strategic investments in two areas. Its people, creating a highly skilled labor force, and its infrastructure, making it one of the most friendly trade and investment hubs in the world. Singapore knew that if it didn't get these two things right, it would have no competitive advantage. Most crucially, it would lose its upwardly mobile workforce to Japan, South Korea or the West, and global economic activity would divert to other parts of Asia. We can all learn from this spaceship Earth, city-state thinking of Singapore. But for me, the jury is still out on responsible competitiveness. Unless the governments and companies around the world can shake off the competitiveness-at-all-costs mentality, there will always be a responsible business laggard, moving with the late majority, certainly not the worst, but far from the best.